Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. I'm Adam Coleman, welcoming you back to the Cosmic Library, the book show that is totally fine with watching movies, even movies that are at best tangentially linked to the books we're talking about. It's clear that Journey to the West, the story about the Monkey King, has offered something to film, to television. Here's translator Julia Lovell. So the book is obsessed with kung fu, with the technical capabilities of immortals and demons. And this this includes, for example, monkeys' ability to manufacture armies of simulacra by chewing his armpit hair to a pulp. And I think in this way, the novel is very interestingly first cousin to the weaponized plots of Hollywood superhero movies, such as Marvel and so on. Even though these two narrative traditions, uh, Journey to the West on the one hand, to Chinese vernacular fiction, and Hollywood superhero movies on the other. So, the even, so even though these two narrative traditions are separated by hundreds of years and thousands of miles. Journey to the West is, in such ways, related to many branching traditions. Its historical narrative of martial arts has characteristics, at least, of the wuxia genre of Chinese fiction and cinema. So in this episode, we're going to take a little walk through the wuxia genre. A walk somewhat away from Journey to the West, but it's a place where you can see certain qualities of Journey to the West. Here's Karen Fang, scholar of cinema and literature. So the wuxia, wuxia refers to sort of martial arts um, in the kind of chivalric tradition of, of sort of errant knights. So in the Japanese tradition, people are familiar with the ronin or the samurai. Um, the, uh, the sha or the knight is a highly skilled warrior trained in Chinese martial arts tradition. So not just sort of kung fu, but it's sort of uh, classical antecedents like qigong, right? The power of, of harnessing the spirit of the body, which of course later gets appropriated by George Lucas for Star Wars. And so the wuxia narratives, like they're originally literary narratives, like the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the Water Margin, these sort of famous classical texts in Chinese literature. This is a major literary genre, but it's also captured imaginations of moviegoers. Just before talking to Karen Fang, I saw the movie Xianyu, a classic Taiwanese wuxia film called A Touch of Zen in English. That movie is full of so much it's just one demonstration of the multitudes that this genre can contain. Wuxia as a film genre develops with, very, pretty much with the advent of cinema. So the rise of narrative cinema begins in, in the 1920s. Shanghai, which is then the Pearl of the Orient, you know, has a fairly active film industry, not quite an industry, but sort of creatives at that time. And some of the first narrative films are some early 
wuxia narratives like the burning of the Red Lotus Monastery in I think 1925 or 26, 27, somewhere around there. There are film narratives that are based on these ancient Chinese narratives. And so the wuxia narrative as a film genre is very distinct to Chinese language culture. It's one of the most distinct, like culturally distinct film genres that develops organically within its culture rather than sort of being borrowed from Hollywood tradition in the way that the Bollywood musical is adapted from the Hollywood musical. Within Chinese language culture, wuxia is then going to go on to have a very complicated geopolitical history. But um, wuxia is fascinating because unlike Western chivalric tradition, like in Arthurian narratives, the Sha or the knight is not gender specific. And I think you said you recently watched um, Shanyu, which means um, it's the feminine form of of the warrior. So uh, uh, female knights are very common in um, the wuxia tradition as well. It's it's not right to refer to Journey to the West as wuxia, but it is right to say that it is very related to, to wuxia, right? Right, correct. You know, they're all, like all of them, um, Journey to the West, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, The Water Margin, like they're all these sort of classical narratives that sort of function in Chinese language culture like the way Greek mythology does. But wuxia is one particular variant of that, and Journey to the West is another one, but there's clear overlap and these sort of threads of connection between them. Wuxia's connections across Chinese culture are many. Kaiser Guo, founding member of the heavy metal band Tang Dynasty, explained the way his band's name called back to the element of historical romance in Chinese literature. Tang Dynasty was also, you know, this period of kind of both literary and kind of martial glory, right? And there had to be this connection. I thought, you know, we're a metal band, right? You look at metal bands in in the UK or in the States, and often the touchstone with them, the cultural touchstone, is you know, Tolkien or medievalism or fantasy, right? Um, Conan the Barbarian, you know, it's that kind of thing, right? And so I thought there's an analogy to that. I mean, the same kind of pimply adolescents who listened to metal in the States, like I did growing up, you know, the hammer of the gods will drive our ships to new lands and all that stuff, right? I, I just thought, wow, you know, there is an analogy in China, which is we all grew up reading, you know, Sangu Yi, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and we all were into, you know, uh, the Jinyong martial arts epics. We all loved that stuff. And so I thought naming it Tang Dynasty and, and having us look like, you know, you know, do our, our hair up, and this is the sort of symbology of it. You know, there's this there's this tradition in China of wuxia, the wuxia xiaoshuo. So that's what we were. I was sort of going for, and I knew that we would touch the same sort of audience. I asked Karen Fang about the political dynamics of Wuxia's historical perspectives. So it's it's fascinating because it is, first of all, right, for any any sort of ethnic Chinese, the Wuxia narratives is part of your cultural heritage to some degree. If you're Asian American like myself, you know, many of us, my generation are very unfamiliar with them. Um, my father actually, I found out late, much later as an adult that my older brother remembered our dad reading martial arts novels, but I didn't remember any of this. So I think every ethnic Chinese, to varying degrees, has some sort of awareness of wuxia narratives as sort of part of our cultural and racial or ethnic heritage or identity. But, you know, they may or may not be sort of um, directly reflective of, of the politics that we inherit from our parents or the political spaces that we're born into or identify into. But basically... The long history of wuxia in 20th century greater China is that with the um, 
Republican nationalism and the sort of battle over how to modernize China in the first part of the 20th century. You know, as I said earlier, there were these, you know, some of the earliest films made in China were these really wonderful wuxia films. But by, I think, 1929, actually, the ruling government in China actually bans wuxia narratives because they feel that it is the fantastical, legendary the magic of wuxia is not consistent with the version of Chinese modernity that that government would like to advocate for. And so what happens is wuxia as a film narrative is no longer produced in mainland China, but it comes back in Hong Kong in the 50s and the 60s because so many of the emigre filmmakers from Shanghai have relocated to Hong Kong as a result of all the political upheaval in the mainland. And so in capitalist Hong Kong, the British colony, the film industry um, grows with wuxia as one of its like chief sort of products. And so wuxia under the Shaw brothers becomes this narrative for an emigre version of China which is very much rooted in the sort of nostalgic about this classical past that the emigre filmmakers in China feel have been lost by the communist revolutionaries in mainland China. That, so that nostalgia is also connected to, as, as you say, a kind of magic in these stories. Um, yeah, the, the, the magic, the spiritual traditions are like, what's the reason why they're, they're banned in mainland China? And it's probably not necessarily what's the object of nostalgia for the emigre filmmakers in, in Hong Kong. I think that the longing for the filmmakers in Hong Kong is this idea of this like beautiful, sumptuous, imperial China of um, sort of learning of genteel China after the Cultural Revolution, that kind of a China is unimaginable. That's the sort of height of the wuxia films in Hong Kong and in Taiwan as well, which is the same thing where you have the filmmakers who you have emigre politicians and filmmakers fleeing to Taiwan and Hong Kong. And so Shanu was actually shot, which is known as Touch of Zen um, in English, right, was, was shot largely in Taiwan by King Hu, who had emigrated to Taiwan um, and of course, the global reception of Shanu in something like some, something like Touches Then is is something else as well, because you know in that case, you know, there's this common critique that there's a kind of Orientalist fascination, right, with this sort of exotic, sumptuous China, right, which is you know behind the reception of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 2000, which you know famously was one of the most globally successful non-Western or non-English language films in the world, but did very poorly in Taiwan and Hong Kong. Now, with this inc incredible political and economic power of China, there's this effort by the Chinese film, the, the mainland Chinese film industry, which is the world's biggest film industry, to um, bring wuxia back home. And so now, ironically, the uh, genre that the communist government had banned, essentially the predecessors of the communist government had banned, are now trying to... to um, to reclaim it, you know, for their own narratives of Chinese unification and Chinese power, Chinese, Chinese ascendancy. It's a genre with real power. It's kind of a mode that, that has obviously real power just in, in terms of its appeal. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a genre about power and it's a, a genre that has power, you know, just like a superhero movie. Could you describe the power structures and the power orders? It's tr like, like superhero movies, which have their own sort of power structures and orders of you know, political orders within them. Any, any post-Star Wars era, you know, <laughs> a, a subject of media in some ways gets it because we all understand the force. The underlying idea in Wuxia is this idea that somebody can reach a level of 
of human transcendency, transcendent power, transcendent skill through a, a through years of training and dedication, both to sort of physical training, but also sort of spiritual dedication. So in the typical Shah narrative, it's often a sort of noble character who, you know, is of high birth, but has dedicated themselves to years of study, either as a warrior or with you know, were with a monk or with both. The final measure or index of their nobility is not just simply their birth, but the way that they perform in the service of some some higher way, some sort of ethical justice or truth, the, the, the Tao. Tao is the word, meaning knowledge or truth. And again, to continue with the Star Wars comparisons, right? That's it, what the Mandalorian is, <laughs> is following the way. Often in a, in a sort of archetypal uh, Wuxia narrative, the Sha is, becomes most noble when they're all alone. And often actually, this is the reason why in sort of fights within a Wuxia film or later on in, in, in its more modern descendant, the Kung Fu narrative, you have these highly um, ritualized fights where, you know, the warrior, the protagonist may be like standing alone in a space, but and encircled by a whole bunch of contestants or foes, but only one foe at a time and always enters into the circle to battle at a time. It always seems like patently unrealistic to many viewers, but it's it's because they're following the codes of, of sort of ritualized combat that the Wuxia narrative espouses. So it's based in real, real physical training and mental and sp- spiritual dedication. And through that, one is able to achieve this kind of level of, of quasi-mystical transcendent power. So again, if you're familiar with the Wuxia narratives, right, you hear about these things with like, you know, the, the five palm fist of power or something like that, where they can, you know, press their hand into space and it doesn't actually contact anything, but somehow they're able to harness forces that can push opponents back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And this kind of solitary, as you said, kind of Taoist journey or transcendence or path, it exists in Wuxia narratives in, in collision with socially dramatic tensions. It exists with regard to uh, politics, political leaders, their fights with the state sometimes. How does the sort of solitary Taoist path collide with other narratives in Wuxia. So if you take sort of the classic, um, you know, Touch of Zen is one of them, as you mentioned, Magnificent Trio is the one that I use a lot in my classes. Um, And so you have Jimmy Wang Yu playing this noble warrior who's off on a journey on his own, you know, he's out, you know, in the Jianghu, which means rivers and lakes. It's this kind of um, 
it's never a specific place in, in, in Wuxia. Like the, the spaces that are described in Wuxia can never be directly mapped onto a time or space in mainland China because the point is that they're, they're sort of kind of allegorical, metaphorical spaces. But anyhow, so the, um, the warrior Jimmy Wang Yu is in the middle of his own journey when he accidentally happens upon a village that is being driven into starvation by a predatory, greedy, um, I think mayor or whatever, I can't remember, the magistrate. Through his own sense of justice, he fights on behalf of the villagers to whom he has no responsibility, no other responsibility other than the sense that this is, this is inherently wrong. And so he represents one kind of power, right? Because he is a nobleman he's, uh, who represents one part of the Chinese elite at the time, but he's going to battle on behalf of the innocent and the poor and the oppressed against the corrupt magistrate who also represents the existing power at the time. And so you can see how, you know, that kind of a, a, a plot is resonant to the emigre filmmakers in Hong Kong who made that film and, and the emigre financiers, the Shaw brothers who funded it. And then when you compare that to any of the Wuxia films that are coming out now from mainland China, and the, the one that, um, again, that I used to, as counterpoint or juxtaposition for my students is to go back and look, I think it, it's a Hero, I think it's 2008 with Jet, Jet Li, you know, comes after Crouching Tiger and is one of the f- sort of first of this, what's been called the, the Neo-Wuxia or the Wuxia revival, which is all these Wuxia films that are made and funded by mainland China. And they're, you know, Hero is explicitly about the unification of China. And the lead character is, you know, who is played by Jet Li, who is mainland China is like, as a child was a, a martial arts, a Kung Fu martial arts star who performed before Nixon, literally embodies the hope of a modern China. Right, the idea of the new generation of modern China becoming globally ascendant in its um, unified form. It's a genre that can do all kinds of things politically. It can convey all kinds of meanings or be a, a way to work through all kinds of political ideas. It also has room for like a mix of of moods, of modes, of tones. There, there, there's like comedy. There's horror. Yeah. There's, how would you describe this mixture of? Mixture of tones in Wuxia. Yeah, so, and 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 Touch of Zen, of course, is a wonderful example of that because it's three hours long, and they almost sort of seem like two different movies. The first half is sort of like this quixotic journey of this bumbling scholar who doesn't really understand what's going on, and it ends with this transcendent moment of spiritual catharsis, right? And I think this is really where the literary and the cinematic genre of Wuxia is so indebted to Journey to the West. Journey to the West also has within it, it lives, also lives in the same world of the Jing Hu, which is a metaphorical version of China in which the adventures or the journey are full of these unexpected encounters that require the protagonist to rely upon extraordinary physical and spiritual transcendent capacities. Wuxia is kind of like the flip side of that. If Journey to the West is what seem, can seem mostly quixotic with wuxia spirituality or martial prowess within it, wuxia is also able to inhabit or to tolerate these moments of bathos in a way that we don't expect in, you know, say, Arthurian legend. And I think that's one of the things that's so distinctive about the sort of aesthetics or the idiom of Chinese language, heroic narrative and its according film genres. Thank you for listening to The Cosmic Library. 
And I'm going to mention our newsletter once more, cosmiclibrary.substack.com. Our guests this time have included Karen Fang, scholar of literature and cinema at the University of Houston, Julia Lovell, whose Journey to the West translation is titled Monkey King, and Kaiser Guo, host of the Seneca podcast. Thank you, as always, to LitHub. I'm Adam Coleman. Be sure to come back for the next installment on The Monkey King's Adventure into the Future. <laughs>